0: So the causal diagrams, they were a great visual tool. What really surprised me was the similarities across the 47 fatalities. You sort of got to say to yourself, have we learnt? What have we learnt? Certainly the takeaways for me were, were some of the reoccurring themes, you know, around supervision, training, communication, and those types of things.
1: That was the voice of Stephen Smythe talking about one of the most important parts of the Brady Review causal diagrams. You'll remember Stephen from the last episode. He's the president of the CFMEU mining division in Queensland, one of the unions that represents miners in Australia. So in this episode we're going to be talking a lot about these causal diagrams and those two factors Stephen mentioned earlier, training and supervision. We're going to be explaining what causal diagrams are, how you can use them in your organisation, why training and supervision are some of the key findings from these diagrams and why the diagrams are so important to the review. And The reason they're so important to the review is that they show us why these fatalities really occurred. A man has died after an industrial accident at a coal mine in the states far north. Now we want to go to that incident in Queensland. The 44-year-old was working 700 metres underground when there was a collapse. This is Rethinking Safety, a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. My name is Sean Brady, and I wrote the Brady Review into fatal accidents in the Queensland mining industry. In this podcast, we'll unpack the findings of the review with the goal to help the Queensland mining industry rethink its approach to safety. You'll hear from leaders in the industry, the regulator, the union, and leading academics and experts in the field of safety, as we ask the question, what is causing fatalities? This is episode two, the role of human error in fatalities. So in this episode, we're going to examine the specific causes of fatalities in the Queensland mining industry over the past 19 and a half years. Now, to examine these causes, we're going to be referring to some of the causal diagrams developed in the review. But before we start this discussion, I want you to ask yourself a question. Do you believe fatalities are caused by human error? In other words, are they caused by someone doing something wrong, for example, not following procedures? Now, if you feel fatalities are caused by human error, you're not alone. In most industries, human error gets blamed for incidents. But as we move through this episode, you'll hear that while human error may have been involved in many fatalities, it was never a sole cause. Other causes were almost always present. So let's get straight into it.
2: I'm Herman Fashing, and I'm the Chief Inspector of Mines for Mineral Mines and Quarries,
1: In today's episode, we'll be speaking a lot with Herman. He's going to run us through an example of what one of these fatalities looks like in reality. So in this review, we examined 47 fatalities. These occurred between the beginning of January 2000 up until the end of July 2019, the period of the review. So how did we actually examine the causes of these fatalities? Well, we took the investigation reports that the regulator prepares after each fatal incident And we represented the findings of each report as a causal diagram. So what is a causal diagram? Well, it's a diagram that fits on a single A4 page and represents the critical details of each fatality in a graphical way. Let's go to Herman to talk about what this actually looks like.
2: A causal diagram really is, on a single A4 sheet of paper, it looks like a flowchart. It's got... um, boxes, it's got arrows between boxes and when you read back through those boxes you can see the salient and important points. So it's a very neat visual representation of a lot of detail from a fatality investigation.
1: As Herman said, this is a flow chart that represents the key details of each fatality on a single A4 page. This means that you can quickly see what happened by looking at just one page. Now 41 of the 47 causal diagrams are reproduced in the Brady Review Report. They're one of the most important parts of the report, because if you read through them, you'll see, in a very practical way, why fatalities occur. So Herman's going to walk us through one of the causal diagrams in a few moments. But before we do that, I want to bring in a person who you haven't heard from yet.
3: My name is Russell Wilson. I'm the uh, general manager for the Queensland Quarries
1: in Ball, Australia. Russell has worked in the quarrying industry for over 30 years. Now, throughout this review, many people talked about how quarries were different to mines. Here's Russell's view on why quarries are different.
3: The first thing I'll say is that the the one thing that I think we are not different in is the focus and importance we place on safety. Why are we different? The, The greatest driver of difference between the quarries and the rest of the mining industry is the fact that they have significant differences in terms of scale.
1: I asked Russell for his views on the causal diagrams.
3: I think the causal diagrams are a really good way to articulate what lays behind those instances, and we've started to use them ourselves.
1: So Russell is using the causal diagrams. Let's go back to Herman to hear how you'd use them you can apply the learnings to your organization. If you're doing
2: similar things or carrying out activities that are, that are the same, really ask yourself, how well do we do this particular thing? Could this happen here? And use it as a bit of a check against your own system or your own process to make sure that some of those causes aren't lurking within your system and within your training and, and the way that your people operate.
1: Now let's look at one of these causal diagrams with Herman, And if you want to follow along, then open up page 95 of the report or follow the link that I've placed in the show notes. Now, why are we going to go through this diagram? Well, the reason is that many things you'll hear about today are common to many of the other causal diagrams. You're going to see that a lot of things have to go wrong for a fatality to occur. And once we reach the end of this diagram, we're going to take a look at those key factors, training and supervision, that Stephen Smythe mentioned at the start of the episode. And before Herman begins, we're obviously going to go into detail on this fatality. So there will be some graphic descriptions and some listeners may find this distressing. The fatality that Herman is going to talk us through today involves a worker who was killed when a pump fell on them.
2: When you read these causal diagrams, you start in the bottom left-hand corner. uh, And if you look at the going back into the causal diagram, there are two contributing factors which led to that. One was that a safety hook on a lifting device failed and, and allowed that pump to fall.
1: So the first contributing factor was that a safety hook, the hook that was supporting the pump, gave way and dropped the pump on the worker below.
2: And the other was that the worker was standing within the drop zone of where that pump was actually going to fall. So two causes, both of them came together with that result. If you look at why that safety hook gave way and caused that pump to fail, the angle of the slings.
1: So the slings are connected to the pump and they're supported by the safety hook. And these slings play a critical role in the lift.
2: So the the way that that thing had been rigged, there were two slings and and the length of the pump meant that the, the angle was too great between the slings on the hook. And it caused, as it was being lifted, caused one of the slings to move up the hook and and ultimately fall off, allowing the pump to fall. And the other side, why was the worker standing in the drop zone? One was the worker genuinely didn't recognise the danger. They they simply failed to see the hazard as it existed. Uh, There was no barrier that was erected as part of this work process to prevent that worker or, in fact, other workers from entering that area while that was being undertaken. And the, the last one contributing there, there was no direct supervision or no contract manager supervi- assigned to supervise and manage that activity that was being
1: carried out. So here you have in terms of contributing factors. The slings moved on the hook and the pump fell. The worker didn't recognise the danger. There was no barrier in place to prevent workers entering the lift area. And finally, there was a supervision issue, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. And the factors keep piling up.
2: If you go back up to the angle of the slings, why was that exceeded? And it went past the OEM's specifications.
1: The OEM that Herman is referring to here, if you're not familiar with the term, is the original equipment manufacturer.
2: There's two factors that contribute there. One was, um, it was the design of the workplace and the bund area and the area they were working meant it was a restricted lift. The crane had to work quite hard to get in there and then where they were doing the lift from was quite contained and that that caused them some problems. The other contributing factor that was there was there was no trained or qualified dogger who had rigged up or in fact was watching the lifts. And the list goes on. Another contributing factor in relation to why didn't that worker recognise the danger was that the labour hire company didn't ensure that its workers were, were properly inducted prior to starting work in the workplace. So they really didn't necessarily understand or were trained in what hazards may be present or what the risks are, or in fact what some of the procedures or rules
1: were. You'll remember that training was something that jumped out at Stephen Smythe when he was looking at the causal diagrams. Training is a key finding in this review and we'll talk about it a lot more later. But we see training as an issue in this fatality that Herman is speaking about. The workers in this instance either weren't aware or weren't trained in the hazards that were present. And training comes up again and again in other fatalities. We found that in 17 of the 47 fatalities, there was a lack of task-specific training for the tasks being undertaken. Then, in addition to these 17 fatalities, a further nine involved inadequate training. That means that in 26 of the fatalities, over half of the total fatalities we examined, there included some issue with training.
2: That the contractors that were undertaking that task were unaware of the requirement for there to be a separate crane operator and a separate dogger. They had worked in other areas and had undertaken other tasks where the crane operator could do both. But in this particular case, it really should have been two individuals, one on the crane, one on the load. And if you ask the question, why did that happen? Um, that again came down to, there was no effective contractor management. There was no contractor supervisor assigned to the task. It really was just the crew supervising
1: themselves. So let's press pause again here. Supervision was also mentioned by Stephen when he spoke about the causal diagrams. This is another key finding of the review that we'll return to later. But in summary, we estimated that 32 of the 47 fatalities required some form of supervision. But in 25 of those cases, the supervision was either inadequate or absent. Now, think about that. In 32 cases, supervision was required, and in 25 of those cases, the supervision was either not good enough or not there at all. So that means that over half of the total fatalities we examined involved some aspect of inadequate an supervision. And still, the factors continue.
2: There was another contributing factor post the accident. Blood tests revealed that that worker did have methamphetamine in their system.
1: Now, it's unclear whether or not this methamphetamine was directly causative on the day. But we're going to talk about it because it highlights something else. It highlights a failure of a control. Back to Herman.
2: We were unsure as to whether or not that contributed to the decision that that worker made on the day. Recognising, however, that there was methamphetamine in that worker's system and that they had taken it, The contributing factor there, which allowed that worker to be at that work site, was that the labour hire company didn't implement any of its own drug and alcohol policies.
1: So this is the final thing we're going to speak about for this fatality, and it's actually key finding number three for the causal diagrams, controls. And this is just as important as training and supervision. So we see one of the controls, the labour hire company's drug and alcohol policy was ineffective. And we see control failures or ineffective controls in the majority of the fatalities we looked at. These controls were meant to protect the individuals and they simply didn't work. So in summary, we see that absent or inadequate training, absent or inadequate supervision and or absent or ineffective controls were present in the majority of fatalities. And in the fatality Herman just spoke about, you can see that all three of these factors had some part to play now let's leave the causal diagram behind and let's talk a little more about supervision, training and controls. Let's start with supervision. Yes,
0: yeah, supervisors are an easy target.
1: That's Stephen Smythe from the CFMEU again. Let's go back to him on supervision here.
0: Yeah, you look at an underground coal mine. We say to a, what they call an ERZ controller or deputy, you're responsible for these six work groups and the area you're working with is a 10 kilometre radius. There's no way that person whose main obligation is the health and safety of men and women and activities is going to be able to supervise, ensure that the level of risk is acceptable at all times. So what happens is we put supervisors into those positions. There's a lot of thought I've got out of the report around the supervision, because it's one of the main areas, you know, either lack of supervision, inexperienced supervision, people not knowing their tasks. So it's certainly an area that, that needs more work done. To go back in time, I think having supervisors who actually understand the task, having supervisors who have experience in it, because at the end of the day, the supervision is just not about uh, directing a person to do a job or a task. It's actually about them understanding the planning process of a task. First and foremost, the risk assessment process through hazard awareness. I think it's time for industry to consider what, again, the critical safety roles that a supervisor are going to do and then provide them with the tools and the skills be able to do that and that certainly will include experience you know what we've seen in recent years in the underground sector is people will do the 12 months underground and suddenly at the end of it they make them into a supervisor you know with all due respect particularly in an underground environment where i've spent over 30 years
1: i'm still learning so stephen talked about some of the things that could be done to tackle the supervision issue here's russell wilson again from borrow talking about supervision from the quarry's perspective
3: There was some work done in my organisation some time ago around how much time people actually supervise, it's specifically in quarries. Not in Queensland, mind you, but it would be no different. And the report found that circa 15 to 20% of their time they were able, they were available to supervise. The rest of the time was managing systems and processes and and paperwork.
1: So how do you free up people from managing systems, processes and paperwork?
3: Some of the solution to that is about finding different methods to collect the data or to capture the information. We've had a system in the past where we're encouraging people to identify hazards and we have fairly good hazard reporting, I think. We're now looking at smartphone-based applications for that where people can see it immediately enter it, job done, finished. Those sorts of things, I think, uh, can give us opportunity to free up people to supervise better.
1: This was a topic I also spoke to Bobby Ford about. Bobby is the Head of Health, Safety and Environment at BHB Mitsubishi Alliance.
2: I think we need to take the administrative load off supervisors as much as possible so that they can spend the maximum amount of time in the field. We've been doing a lot of work on this at at BMA. It's something called a Super 90 project where we're trying to get our supervisors up to 90% of their time in the field by removing all of those barriers through use of technology, taking admin tasks away and really making sure that people understand their priority is to be in the field with their people. Some of the initiatives of the Super 90 program have included things like provision of technology at the point of, of where the work is done so that maintainers can enter their own information about defects, for example, rather than entering that in a, in a paper-based format and expecting supervisors to do that later.
1: So the supervision challenge is a big one. Because this is not the only fatality review that identified it as an issue. A Western Australian fatality review also highlighted major deficiencies in supervision. It found that 44% of fatal accidents occur under the supervision of a person in their first year in the role. So, if the industry wants to do something practical to improve safety right now, then find a way to improve the quality of supervision. Now, let's move on from this subject and talk about training. Here's Stephen Smythe again.
0: Well, I think um, in relation to training and, and bringing people along, um, what used to work in the past, and, I, and it's sometimes you've got to look back to go forward, we used to mentor our people. We'd put them with experienced older workers who would mentor and bring the person through. You know, and tradesmen have done that for 50 and 60 years, where an electrician or a fitter or a boiler maker. Mentors the person, the apprentice coming through, they mentor and they put their arm around and they bring them on this journey and they come out at the end as a, as a tradesman, hopefully with the skills. No different with the mining, you know, we put these training schemes in place and say, Oh, we're going to get Mary over there and train her up on that dump truck. But what we used to do was we'd put Mary in the dump truck and we'd put a trainer, assessor beside her. That trainer, assessor would, would shadow Mary and then he would say, or she would say, Right, they can come out of close personal supervision now. They go to the next. Part of this training now. What we do is we put Mary in the truck, we give her a familiarisation. We send Mary down the road, and the trainer or assessor will go then and look after four or five other people on a circuit. That's an example of where training, the close personal mentoring, is gone. And in the underground sector, it's the same. and And I think that if we just wholly and solely purely look at health and safety, I think we can do better in training.
1: Now, one of the many aspects of training is that training focuses on how you do things. But here's Matt O'Neill. He's the chief operating officer for Glencore's base metals business in Queensland. You heard from him in the last episode, and here he is talking about the importance of not only how you do things, but why you do things.
2: I think one of the other reasons, you know, why you're trying to work out why in the world would somebody do it that way? is around the training and some of our training and actually most of our training focuses in on how you do things. And a lot of times we do have a conversation around the why in terms of why you're doing it, but we miss getting people to have that true understanding of why am I actually doing it this way? What is it that I'm trying to prevent from happening? And I think that why is a really important part. And if you get someone to understand why, then they won't do the thing that we just talked to, you know, why would they do it that way? Well, because they don't understand what they're trying to prevent. They know how to do it but they don't necessarily understand why they're doing it that way.
1: So Matt is saying that the why in training is as important as the how in training. Just to emphasize that point, I want to bring back in a guest from our last episode.
4: My name's Peter Wilkinson. I work
1: for Noetic Solutions. I'm their general manager, risk. Peter has lots of experience dealing with procedures. So I asked him for his thoughts on them and the importance of why.
4: Another aspect was the procedure was written some time ago. This person who's now operating the procedure had never been given the context and background as to why this needed to be done in this particular way. And there is good evidence that if we know why something is important, it's much more likely to be followed. Why is it
1: important that this is done this way? So what's an example of a way that you can get the why into procedures? The two column approach, do this
4: and the next column, why you need to do that, which helps improve the reliability of the procedure. I think it's a slightly naive view to say all we need to do is to get people to follow procedures, possibly. But most procedures aren't written in a way that that is likely to ever to be successful.
1: So ensuring people understand why things are done in a certain way is just as important as them understanding how they are done. So training is a big challenge, just as we said supervision was earlier. If the industry can find a meaningful and practical way to improve training, they can make the industry safer. Which brings up the third of our most important findings from our analysis of the causal diagrams, controls. In the majority of the fatalities we examined, there were ineffective or absent controls. Controls that if they had worked, could have resulted in a different outcome. We're going to talk about this a lot more in Episode 3 when we talk about the industry's response to incidents. But to highlight the importance of controls, I want to bring in a guest that you haven't heard from yet.
2: I'm Mark Stone. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Resources Safety and Health Queensland.
1: Mark has worked for the regulator for over five years. Prior to that, he worked internationally in oil and gas and he's passionate about safety. I asked him about what can happen if a control is ineffective.
2: The mining industry, the mining and quarrying industry is hazardous. We know that there are many hazards. When those hazards are controlled, when the risk management process is done well, then the mining industry is not dangerous. But we know, we certainly know from the report, that there are many examples, there are many instances when the hazards haven't been controlled, the hazards haven't even been identified. But if the hazards aren't identified, or if they are identified and not appropriately controlled, we know that people can get hurt. We know that people can
1: get killed. So, the consequences of a control being missing or inadequate can be severe. And in the next episode, this will be a big topic for discussion. But for now, these are the three key factors that we see come up again and again in these fatalities supervision, training, and controls. So one criticism of these findings is that there's nothing new here. People have been talking about supervision, training and controls for years. And that's right. But despite all this talk, these three factors are still causing fatalities. Which brings us right back to the question I asked you to ask yourself at the beginning of this episode. Do you believe fatalities are caused by human error? To answer that, let's start out by going back to the fatality that Herman stepped us through earlier.
2: In relation to is this just human error, I don't believe it is. Did the worker make a mistake on the day standing where they were? Quite possibly they did in not recognising the hazard. But the reality is all of the other processes and systems and procedures that should have been in place to in fact prevent that worker from standing in that place The organisational failings that contributed to allowing a crane operator there without a dogger, um, people who weren't necessarily appropriately inducted, systems that weren't being applied in relation to drug and alcohol training, induction, all of those things contributed on the day to that event. So it took a lot of things to go wrong to make that
1: event occur. And we see this again and again in the majority of fatalities. You may have human error, but you generally need many, many things to go wrong for it to culminate in a fatality. Now, this is not a new finding. This is simply how accidents happen in many industries. You'll remember Peter Wilkinson spoke about procedures earlier. Peter's going to read us a quote from James Reason about the causes of incidents. And when Peter talks about barriers and defences here, he's essentially referring to controls. And bear in mind... This quote is in no way specific to the mining industry.
4: Let me give you the quote in full. It was gradually becoming apparent that accidents in well-defended systems arose from a mixture of many different factors arising from all levels of the organisation. The defining feature of such an organisational accident was that these latent systemic conditions in combination with local triggers opened up a brief window of accident opportunity through the system's barriers and controls, allowing the local hazards to come into damaging contact with people or assets.
1: So the key takeaway here is that when we look at individual fatalities we see that fatalities occur because of a combination of banal, everyday, straightforward factors such as a failure of controls, a lack of training and or absent or inadequate supervision. In practical terms, we're talking about people not wearing seatbelts, vehicle collisions, runaway of vehicles with faulty brakes, workers being struck by falling objects, workers falling and conveyor accidents. It's in these everyday activities that the fatalities are occurring. What
4: came out to me time and time again was how mundane, sad, tragic even, and I was really struck and hurt when I read the incident about the fatality in a conveyor. How many conveyor accidents have I been to? They all have the same feature, or very similar features, and that is Sunday gets caught in the in-running nip between the belt and a roller, or the tail drum, or, or head drum. Is it just that a guard had been taken off, or a guard not put on? That's only looking at the causes in a superficial way. Was the new conveyor system designed in the first place to have the guards installed from the start? Who took that decision Why wasn't the guarding put in place? Who was responsible for monitoring that installation or checking it was safe before it was put into use? So the point I'm making is, it's too simplistic to say there was no guard and somebody got caught in it and tragically killed. There are always a significant number of other really important causal factors and we find that in almost every serious incident you investigate managerial failures, often leadership failures, procedural failures and indeed there are failures at the front line. But we must always bear in mind that we are fallible human beings and we have to guard against fallible human beings making predictable errors. I have been to too many conveyor accidents and I was upset to read that.
1: Now, it's important to hold people accountable for their actions. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't do that. The danger is where this leads to organisations just focusing on simple or single causes, such as human error. Human error is such an easy thing to blame when it comes to accountability. But we know that these fatalities did not have simple or single causes. Instead, they were a combination of banal everyday factors. So what we really need to ensure is that we're looking hard at these system causes and this needs to occur at the organisational level. I believe one of the most important things we can do when it comes to thinking about the causes of fatalities is to stop thinking about fatalities in terms of human error. It may have initiated the incident, but it was usually the system causes, for example a lack of training, supervision or effective controls that allowed this human error to culminate in a fatality. Because the reality is that these system causes are happening around us all the time. It's just that we haven't had the human error or other local triggers to produce a bad outcome. This is important because it means that while we can't do anything about human error, we can do a lot to make sure the systems we build around people to keep them safe are functioning properly. Then, when someone inevitably makes a mistake, the consequences may not be as severe. In our next episode, we'll look at serious accidents and the controls industry puts in place to prevent reoccurrence. And if you thought that the majority of those controls are the most effective available, you'd be wrong. And if after all we've gone through today, after all you've heard, you still think that human error is the primary problem when it comes to fatalities in the mining industry, let's go back to Herman one final time.
2: There are 18 individual boxes that are on this page. And for those people that say, oh, it was a very simple event or whatever, there's 18 individual events, actions, or or things that failed or went wrong that were important enough to be included in that pictorial representation. So a lot of stuff needs to go wrong for these things to happen.
1: You've been listening to Rethinking Safety a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. Our objective for this podcast is to reinvigorate the conversation about safety in mining. This podcast was written and produced by Brady Hayward in partnership with Waveland Creative. Archival audio provided by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales and additional audio by Colin Tyrus. I'm Sean Brady and I'll speak to you on our next episode.